This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, you'll see on the screen a number, and I'll put that number up again at the, at the end. Uh, if, as we're going along, you might just want to take a picture of that or write down the number in case, as we're going along, if you have a question that's just burning in your soul, uh, rather than forgetting that question or, uh, you know, going to other seminars and then trying to come back on the last session so you can ask your question, text us the question to that number. And um, we will try to either incorporate uh, your dynamic questions as we go, or uh, we'll take a little bit of time at the end of every session is the goal to, uh, to address some of those. So 575-322-4130. All right. Uh, we almost got through our, our uh, theme for la- in the last session. So we'll just pick up with uh, two more quotes Natasha wanted to share, and then we'll launch into the subject Uh, the subject for this session. Well, I think this is good anyway because it fits better almost into this next next hour. So now we're going to be talking about the very practical nuts and bolts of how do I study the Bible in a way that is going to make it, whoops, that is going to make it highly meaningful to me. So if I want to have good devotions, you know, I want to have that spiritual, you know, worship and devotion, but hey, it's just, it's, it's, it's been the motions for me. I haven't been really connecting with this. How do I practically do it? That's what we're going to be going through in this time. And so I think this, this quote uh, follows through, answers almost maybe the first question on the nuts and bolts side of things. Hey, how do I scroll forward, kid? You can use that oh, okay. button or you can use that <laughs> Okay. Button. All right. It's, it's really great to be, whoops, speaking with my brother again. Okay. So very first question that we get asked frequently, you know, how long do my devotions need to be? to be quality, you know, to really get the effect that I need, how much time do I need. And one of the things my husband and I work for, for Pastor Mark Finley, and that is a tremendous blessing to be under his mentorship. But one of the things that he says that when people ask him, how long do you have your devotions for? He says the answer that he always gives them is long enough to know that I've truly connected with heaven. So that may be different amounts of time. And one of the struggles, I think, in our, especially like, as Paul, Sean was talking about, our hyper-connected uh, age where, and we know that smartphones decrease our in- attention span tremendously and actually decrease our IQ. Isn't that a little bit frustrating? Okay, so <laughs> iPhones actually decrease your IQ, too. Probably our EQ as well, our emotional quotient. Okay, so... In our hyper-connected state where it's like, oh, this is going on, oh, this is going on, and we're so accustomed for switching our attention from this to this to this to this to this to this very rapidly, and and then our... microphone's rubbing. Okay. And then our quality time when we come to the Word of God, now we're supposed to really focus and get deep and everything, and our mind is wandering to and fro throughout the whole earth, and we find, hey, you know, this is just is really not, you know, this is not the most interesting book, and I'm just not connecting, and I don't understand this, and I'm not feeling, you know, nourished by God, and this is frustrating. Well, let's talk about how long should we spend in our devotions, long enough to know that we're truly connected. Here's this quote from Education. Many, even in their seasons of devotion, this is probably a familiar quote to us. 
fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. Why? They are in too great haste. I woke up late, such and such is going to happen, I need to have breakfast, I need to get ready for the day before all this occurs, and so I'm having to rapidly go through my thing. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain. No time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain to the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God. To think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of his spirit. So how long do we need to have our devotions for? Simply the answer that I was just telling you my mentor gave us. Long enough to know that you have truly connected with heaven. And that is longer than many of us like. We, we, don't, we don't like this to be so, you know, undefined. It's like, hey, if I know I need to do this, I need to spend, you know, 15 minutes, I need to spend half an hour, I need to spend an hour, I need to spend two hours. That's defined. You know, it's 6 o'clock now, now it's 8 o'clock, I'm done. Or, you know, it's, it's 6.30, now it's 7 o'clock, I'm done. And actually, that's not how it works in relationships, huh? When we're talking with our friends, with our family, with our spouse, if we're married, it doesn't work that way. It's like, hey, Paul, you know, 7.30, now 8 o'clock, we're done. We're, we should be thoroughly 27 connected. 27 seconds, so any 7 minutes and 30 seconds left, <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't work that way, right? So when we're having our devotions, now it is good to say, you know, how many, think to yourself, how long are my devotions right now? Are they quality? Do I feel connected with God? Do I really sense his spirit coming into my life and changing me, changing the way I think, changing the way I process? Okay, how long are my devotions right now? On, a, on an averaged out basis, maybe. All right, so how long should it be to really give myself time to commune? Really give myself time to slow down? Really give myself time not to be thinking about this and that and the other and seeing notifications coming up on my phone? And all. Long enough, our devotion should be long enough to be sure we're connected with God. You know, some people like Charles Spurgeon, who was the one of the most remarkable pastors possibly in history. Do you know how much time he spent with God? Actually, time specifically praying per day? Four hours. He also preached ten times per week. He also was running an orphanage. He was also running a seminary. He was also running a nursing home. He also was running the largest church at the time in the world. But he still prayed four hours a day because he felt he was too busy to pray any less. So this is something we need to be adjusting ourselves. Now, should we go if we've only been accustomed to having five minutes with God and be like, oh, hey, four hours. No, we shouldn't do that. Allow yourself to grow. Where are you right now? And say, okay, if I'm only accustomed to five minutes with God, tomorrow I'm going to slow down and maybe spend 15 minutes with him. And then after I've spent that much time with him consistently, okay, maybe now I'm going to increase it and spend half an hour with him and really allow the word of God to get through my busy mind and down into my heart. Mm -hmm. And allow your walk with God 
to grow. It is, again, a relationship. I don't say, oh, I, I have 15 minutes with Paul, and then I'm done, and I have to get into my day. Okay, today, now I'm going to have 25 minutes with Paul, and then I'm done. It doesn't happen in a relationship. So we need to allow our relationship with God to blossom and grow. And let me paint you another picture, just uh, kind of building off of that idea. Uh, are there any, do you have any farmers in the room? Anyone, anyone, any farmers? Good. We've got some farmers in the room. Anyone have like a garden? Anyone, flower gardens, any kind of garden? Okay, awesome. Um, farming, gardening can be hard work. Yes or no? Yes. Uh, and now, what, what is it the farmers do exactly? Plant, reap, they grow, grow food. Grow food, grow flowers, grow alfalfa, grow whatever. They, they're growing stuff. Question. Is growing vegetables hard work? Truly. Are you sure? How do you actually <laughs> grow vegetables? I would submit to you, brethren, that growing vegetables is not hard work at all. You know what hard work is? Weeding. <laughs> Hoeing. Watering. Preparing the soil. Prepa or even harvesting. Actually growing. You don't grow anything, actually. Which is why one of those, you know, you'll see these ads and stuff. Grow your business. I'm thinking, that is not the right, I mean, I guess technically it is a right use of that English word, but we don't grow anything. We don't even grow ourselves. We grow by ourselves or, you know, God does the growing. My point is farming is hard work, but growing things is not actually the work. Creating an environment so that things can grow, that's the hard work. Mm -hmm. So when we think of relationships with God, I want you to think of it in the same terms. A relationship with God, you guys, is not hard work. I mentioned already once before that he is the most beautiful, the most kind, the most loving, the most charming, the most engaging and interesting person that ever was in the history of the universe. So having a relationship with God is not work. Hmm. Preserving an environment where that relationship can do what it's supposed to do, which is grow, that is the hard work. So when we're answering, uh, in answer to, or kind of building off of this statement, Natasha just, so how do you, you know, have to watch, how long should you be studying in the morning? Again, and we'll go, uh, I'll go a little bit more into these details uh, for a session of this afternoon when we're talking about um, how to study. This morning is what to study. Uh, and, uh, but I want you to, uh, again, like that other picture I gave you at the, at the beginning of last session with the word cloud, uh, we get actions and we get verbs and nouns sometimes confused. Worship, what is worship? What is devotion? What are devotions? What is devotion? Um, I, want to keep, I want you to keep in the back of your mind this, this fact, this idea that, in fact, having a relationship with God, relating to God isn't hard work or shouldn't be hard work. What is hard work is cutting out other things of our life sufficient so that there's actually room there's actually a patch of ground that's weed-free where seeds can actually sprout and grow. Does that make sense? Okay, so moving on here, our subject for, our official subject for this session, uh, where do you find that? Where do you find that? The secret, the not-so-secret places to jumpstart a new devotional experience or renew uh, 
uh, a rev or revitalize an old one. Uh, again, we're going to broad stroke cover a lot of uh, a lot of things to do, a lot of kind of more practical tactics in this. We won't nearly uh, cover them all, but one you will find coming up uh, again and again when you talk to me, or if you talk to me, or if you hear me preach, or whatever. Um, and that is stories. This is, if we're, if we're uncovering, like, you know, secret tools to a vibrant a devotional experience, we'll keep coming back to stories. And I think you'll see why uh, as we progress. First, though, look at that nice car. That's my car. That's not actually my car, because I've never actually parked my car on the beach. But it's the same model and year and color as my car. Now, let me ask you a question. What color is my car? Y'all are so smart. How did you know it was black? I did not say. You saw a picture of my car, and it was black. And you remembered. That was easy, wasn't it? Let us say that one day I go out and I buy this car. And I drive it home. And then I pick up my phone to call my mom and tell her that I bought a new car. And I know my mom is going to ask me, what color is your car? Because my mom just has a thing for the color of cars. She doesn't actually, but anyway, in this illustration. My mom has a thing for the color of cars. So she's going to ask me, what color is my car? And so I begin to practice. What color is my car? Black. I ask the dealer, what color is this car? Black, he says. Black, black, black. Black car, black car. B-L-A-C-K. Black, black car. I have a black car. Mother, I just bought a black, 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 black. It's black. It's black, B-L-A-C-K-K-C-A-L-B, clab, black, clab, black, black, B-L-A-C-K. Okay, okay. Unnecessary, right? <laughs> Why is it unnecessary? Because in my mind, I have a picture, and my picture is of my car, and that picture is a black car. I don't have to learn the color of my car. And you know what else? I don't have to learn the color of my sister's car. I have a black car, black, black, black. She has a red car, R-E-D, red, black, red, black, red, black, red, black, red. And my parents' car is silver, oh no. Silver, black, red, silver, black, red, red, black, silver, red, black, silver. Do you know this is how we study school? <laughs> this is how we prepare for finals. <laughs> and you know this is sometimes the way we study our Bibles. Mm. What is the secret that unlocks us from our spot on the couch? <laughs> black, red, silver, black, red, silver, black, red, silver, black, red. What is the secret? The secret is the picture. Are you tracking me so far? In Scripture, we have pictures. Oh, that even rhymed. In Scripture, we have pictures, and those pictures come in the form of stories. Mm. Your brain learns by means of stories. Your brain remembers by means of pictures. One last experiment. 
I want you to try your very best. Now, I'm going to say two words, and I don't want you to picture them. Gray elephant. I won. (laughs) Your brain thinks in pictures. And why am I again emphasizing that? Because if I am studying the word of infinite God and it is completely just, you know, Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones, literally and figuratively to me, maybe it's because I'm trying to force my brain to take in information in a manner it does not like, i.e., black, red, silver, black, red, silver, black, red, silver, black, red, silver, black, red, silver. It's time to go to the final. (laughs) So what's the solution? Stories. Oh. Now, there are many reasons why stories make up the, the foundation of my devotional time, my devotional uh, exercises, and I'll just throw a few out there. And again, I don't want to tell you that reading stories is the only way to have devotions, but I do want to say that I, I just, I highly favor it, and, and that's for several reasons. Number one, your brain works that way. We've already established that. Number two, Jesus himself, nine times out of ten, when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what did he use? Stories. Stories. Parables. Often those parables, incidentally to us, they're just kind of far-fetched stories now. But often, Ellen White tells us, that the stories that he used were stories that were, that were colloquial. They were, they were in common um, circulation as you know, legends, or, or, or they were literal stories that had been on the front page of Jerusalem Gazette, you know, two weeks ago or whatever. These are things that people knew and could relate with. And he took those experiences and he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Woman sweeping her house furiously looking for her gold coin. And they're like, ah. Now, he used those stories because, number one, they're memorable. And number two, they make sense. I think he also used stories because... Jesus often, you remember he will, uh, there were a couple times when his disciples came to him and they were asking him questions and he would give them the answer and they just weren't satisfied with his answer. And he would say, I can't tell you right now. Hmm. Like, I would tell you right now, but you wouldn't get it. You would not understand it. You would freak out or misunderstand it or what I can't tell you right now. So what I will tell you is a story. You remember Jonah? Remember Jonah. Remember Jonah and me. Okay. And then later, years later, they'd be like, oh, yeah. Remember he told, mind you, that many years later, they're not remembering black, red, silver. They're remembering the story. Hmm. And woven into that story is this supernatural life of God. Incredible. The life of God is still woven through those stories. Amen. And those stories, they don't change or morph, uh, but they are seen, they are alive. So we can read the same old story in Scripture and suddenly have this revelation of, oh, wow, there's something new in that story that I didn't even see yesterday. And the reason why it's there is just it's infinitely deep. I almost, I consider the stories in Scripture, the parables in Scripture, and the, narrative, the massive narratives in Scripture to be one of the most significant uh, proofs that we have, if you will, of the divinity of Scripture. Amen. The fact that they can keep going and keep being alive and keep being relevant in every age, that's not just some yarn some guy spun one time. No. 
This is obviously something far deeper than that. So what to study? Stories. All right. So how do you extract the actual juice from a story? We're going to do two practical examples. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up your Bibles. And both of these are stories that have had a lot of impact in my life. So we're going to do this very practically. Open your Bibles to John 9. And I'm going to give you three questions to ask yourself any time you study a story that will help to unlock any juice that is in that story, okay? First question, you're going to, you know, if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. First question, what is happening here? Second question, how would I feel if, I was, if this was happening to me, if I was standing right there in that story? Third question, how does this apply to my life? All right, let's do this practically. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. All right, question number one. What is happening here? Okay, there's a man blind from his birth. What else is happening here? Jesus is passing by. Okay, question. Why is Jesus passing by? Anyone know why Jesus is passing by? All right, let's look at the, the, the verse from uh, the previous chapter, last verse from the previous chapter, uh, last two verses from the previous chapter. So John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going, and going through the midst of them, and so passed by. 9 verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. So what's happening here? There's a man blind from his birth. We talked about him. The, the picture, there's a guy sitting there on the side of the road, blind from his birth. Okay, so how do I feel if I'm in this story? I can picture this from a couple different per perspectives. I can picture this as the man that's sitting on the side of the roadway, blind from his birth. And in the distance, I can hear the chaos of an infuriated crowd because Jesus just told them before Abraham was, I am. And they're enraged because that's the Jewish national name for God. And how dare you say that? That is blasphemy. And so they start grabbing rocks and they're starting to throw it. And Jesus hides himself and he starts passing through. Or you can be one of the disciples in this picture. Okay, disciples are here. Jesus just said that. They're all kind of shocked because did, he did that just really come out of Jesus' mouth? Okay, now Jesus, and they're all trying to you know, follow him out because there's stones flying and fists and shouting and yelling. And as, Jesus, and as this mob is enraged over what Jesus said, he's walking, and what does he see? A man who's been blind from his birth who's just sitting by the roadside. Okay, now how are you feeling now? from the chaos of this tremendous, like, climactic statement that Jesus just made, and the rage that's flying, and the stones that are being snatched up from the ground to do this guy in because he just said, that just came out of his mouth, and then Jesus just walking through, and Jesus looks, and he sees someone who's been blind from his mother's womb, and what does Jesus do? Well, there's a mad mob back there. It's not a good time to perform a miracle. Let's go, folks. You know, disciples, let's move on. Is that what Jesus does? What does he do? As he's passing by, he sees and he stops. Okay, now how are you feeling if you're present, if you're the blind man? That this great teacher who's just, there's a mob going on back there trying to stone him, trying to kill him, trying to murder him, and yet he has the mind 
and the serenity to pay attention to me sitting on the roadside. Or if you're the disciple watching Jesus. Now, second, uh, okay, first question, what's happening here? Jesus passes by, he sees a man blind from his birth. So we have that picture. How do I feel if I'm in the story? How do I feel if I'm a disciple? How do I feel if I'm the man? How do I feel if I'm one of that crowd that's so enraged? Okay, third question, how does this apply to my life? Do I still have a God that in the midst of a great controversy, when this little planet's enraged about him, I may be just someone blind from my birth, sitting on the side of the road, but Jesus, as he's passing by, he stops. He sees me. Do you see the comfort that we can get from one verse? And by the way, the story of the man blind from his birth takes uh, most of the chapter. So we've just started on the first verse, and we have something that is enriching and a blessing to us, something that's actually pulling us into the scriptures, because this is incredibly interesting, of the picture of the dust flying and the stones being snatched up and, and Jews walking out and suddenly diverting to deal with some fellow who's been blind from his birth, and the disciples are like, oh, who sinned? This man or his parents? I mean, these stories are amazing. They are so interesting. Bordering on, uh, yeah, the disciples' reaction, I mean, it's just like so much is going on, and you're going to be like, well, who's in? Okay, so there is so much in the Bible. Do you see? But we are in too great haste, like the quote says. We're like, oh, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And then the disciples asked him, who's in? This man or his parents? Oh, and then Jesus said, no, no not, neither this man or his parents. And we zip through, and then we're like, oh, the Bible's not that interesting, and I haven't gotten too much out of my devotions this morning. And oh, now I go off into my day, not even having the comfort that in the middle of this chaos, Christ notices me sitting on the side of the road because I'm blind from my birth and he wants to give me spiritual eyesight today. Today. So three questions. What's happening here? And slow down. We need to slow down. We're in too great haste. Slow down. What is happening here? Jesus is passing by. Why is he passing by? Enter into the story. Put yourself there. Second question. Why, you know, how would I feel if I was here? Third question, how does this apply to my life? Okay, one other story to, to apply this to so we can really get the principle of how do we get the juice out of these stories. Okay, Deuteronomy 33. Let's take an Old Testament example because we've just already looked at a New Testament example and there's some differences, of course, between the Old and New Testament. Okay, Deuteronomy 33. Now, and here's where I want to also add a plug in for the Conflict of the Ages series. If you are struggling to see the color in the stories in the Bible, let the Conflict of the Ages series be your friend, Genesis to Revelation. There's so much, those books are so profound, so profound. Okay, so, so what we're going to use in this example is an example partially of the Bible and then letting the Conflict of the Ages series enhance our study experience, enhance the story, and then figure out how does that apply to my life. So we're in Deuteronomy 33. What's happening in Deuteronomy 33? Are we familiar with our Bibles? What's Deuteronomy 33? Last words of Moses, okay? Deuteronomy 33, literally the last words these people heard out of Moses' mouth. Who is Moses? Great man, started in Egypt. He was the heir to the throne, incredible man, running the, you know, the armies, all this in intense life that they're very familiar with his history. He disappears for 40 years because he killed the Egyptian, tried to do things himself. He reappears after 40 years of being in the woods, and then he comes, and now he leads them for 40 years. And now he's at the very end of his career. This is the last words of Moses. Let's come to the closing, uh, conclusion, uh, 
the conclusion of the chapter. By the way, as he goes through this chapter, he gives a blessing to each tribe. And if you read in Patriarchs and Prophets, he is standing there giving his last words. The spirit of inspiration is resting upon him. Okay, picture this, folks. We're, we're in this story. How, what's happening here? How would I feel if I was standing there? The spirit of inspiration is upon this man. He is giving these beautiful blessings to these tribes. He's already told them, I'm not going over with you. I'm going to die because of what happened, you know, at the Waters of Mary, where he got upset at them because of how stubborn they were being. Okay, so he, he's already told them, these are my last words. This is goodbye. This is goodbye to this man who has been with this nation for 40 years, being their parent. And now he's given them each a blessing, each tribe a blessing, and he comes down to uh, verse, let's start, pick up at 26. Last words of Moses. Picture this, folks. You're in the crowd. He's standing there. Last words of Moses. 26, there is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, this is Israel, who rideth upon the heaven in your help, and in his excellency on the sky, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. And Israel shall dwell in safety alone, and the fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine, also his heaven shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thine excellency. And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread down their high places. Now, here's where Conflict of the Ages series gives us an added color. She says that when he finished those words, he turned around and walked out of the camp in silence and alone. And the people who have been assembled to hear his last words are watching him go, getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and they know they will never see him again. How do you feel if you're standing there? Now you're starting to remember all the good things Moses has done and how he has kept us close to God, and how he interceded for us at the calf, and how he, you know, his intercession kept God from disinheriting us as a people, and he's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and we will never see him again on earth, okay? And he walks away in silence and alone and goes up the mountain, has a vision there, and he dies. Okay. How do I feel if I'm in that story? And how does this apply to my life? Do I have any Moseses in my life? When he's telling me to do this and I'm frustrated and there's, oh, there's no man on this, my soul loathes this light bread and oh, can I have this? And oh, Moses, and they're always irritated at Moses God and Moses and Moses and Moses. Exactly, and they're always frustrated at Moses. He's the problem and he's so annoying and he did this and he does that and he corrects us and he rebukes us and we don't like it and we don't like it. Until we're watching him walking away in silence and alone and we know we will never see him again. Suddenly we're remembering, okay, what Moseses do I have in my life? Anybody? Oh, your parents. <laughs> we have some Moses in our life. Any other Moses in our life? Anyone else? About the word of God. Is this a Moses in our life? Hmm. They rebukes us 
and tells us, don't do that. This is the way. Walk ye in it. And we're like, why, why can't I do this other thing? You know, you're, you're cramping my style. You're cramping my style. You're always rebuking me. Why can't you see my good traits? You know, why do you have to be always noticing the things I do wrong? Our mentors, our parents, authority figures, pastors, the word of God, the spirit of prophecy are all Moses in our lives that we're feeling frustrated with in the moment. But let's put ourselves in that moment and watch and know how precious that Moses should be to us. Okay? So many lessons. Every story. Three questions. What's happening here? How would I feel if I was standing there? How does this apply to my life? These stories can come alive. Even one verse can come alive. I'll steal a little bit also from this, uh, this afternoon where we're going to talk about some more of the practical tactics on how. Again, this morning we're trying to concentrate on what we study. But she's spoken about the conflict of the ages series. And, and if you're anything like me, you know that while we all have them on our shelves at home, some of us just adore them, and some of us are like, oh, yeah, those, I read those once. I, I read Great Controversy. It was good. Yeah, it was a good book. You know. um, the difference can often be in the... Um, the difference can actually often be in how we read. Mm. Uh, you and I might read the same Conflict of Ages page. You and I might read the same chapter in Scripture. And depending on the approach that we took just even the literary approach we took to the words on the page, we get it or we completely miss it. Um, all of us have different strengths and learning styles and all this. I, I don't want to sit here and predicate and say this is the best way to read. But I'll tell you for myself, I have to read it out loud. I have to read it out loud. Number one, if you're reading out loud, you are reading at a third of the pace that you read when it's in your brain. And you actually have to read every word. When you don't read out, when I don't read out loud, I read it like a textbook. Who here reads every word of a textbook? <laughs> You're just getting the idea, right? You got to get the idea. Well, but scripture, there's so much. I mean, again, this is two little verses, and we have this whole glorious picture. And I'm standing up here, and my little heart is pounding, watching Moses go. But you wouldn't get that if we just good. Yes. Okay. Next. Yes. You know, so stop. Conflict of the Ages is just full of color and, and, pay, and pathos. And scripture is full of color and texture and pathos. But you've got to actually read it slow enough to absorb it, to absorb every word, every phrase, to absorb the inflections and the ideas and what's being said and even what's not being said in the rest of the, you know, colorful, glorious picture. That's why the three questions are helpful, because if we're answering those three questions, we have to slow down. Yeah. We have to say, okay, what is happening here? Okay, how would I feel? And it adds a lot more color to the story. Yeah. So literally, like my sweet wife and I, um, obviously we have our devotions. Most of the time, even though we just love being together and everything is, we, we, most of the time we split up into different rooms when it's, um, you know, time for devotions. Because both of us have found that we really do massively better when we are muttering to ourselves all devotions long, re, you know, reading under our breath type of thing, and mm. when you're in the same room with someone else doing that, you know, that can be a little bit distracting. So, basically, again, this is a, this is a matter of what are we doing? We're, trying to, we're cultivating, we're trying to create an environment where the seed can grow, because you can't grow seeds. If your devotions are, are, you know, particularly dry or hard or difficult, maybe 
something's up with the environment. You're reading too fast, or someone else is reading out loud, and you're try, you know, trying to, so there's something distracting, something, some other element is preventing the life and power and color and texture and emotion even packed in the Word of God from mm. actually impacting you, from actually being visible to you. Mm. Let's throw that out there. Okay, so what to study? Number one, it's at the top of the list because I really think it needs to be at the top of the list, stories. In brief, we learn best by stories. Rather than mm-hmm. trying to pack our minds full of information like we do before finals, information that the brain the whole time is like, stop it, don't want it, which is why we have to sit there and repeat it to ourselves over and over and over again. Get into the story and let the, the, the word of God and the spirit of God tailor the experience of that story to, you know, to me today. It's practical. We can do it again with more technical parts of scripture, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Um, but even the technical parts of scripture, if you can, if you can see the storyline in that, most of the time, that Pauline epistle or whatever will come to life in new ways to you and suddenly won't be nearly as much of an enigma. So stories, number one. Topical study. Uh, obviously, this is, another, this is another form of study. It's another kind of priority in study. And it's... Uh, it's, um, I don't want to go out on a limb and say which one is most important, but I would say topical studies are also highly important, and they'll make up a, a significant portion of the dynamic uh, devotional experience. Now, topical studies, when most of us hear the words topical study, we think, okay, concordance. And yes, I think that's a good place for your mind to go. I would say, though, we've just finished talking about stories. Let me give one more plug, because I'm just obsessed with stories. Even topical studies, uh, it's, it's often a good idea to approach it first by story. Let me give you an example. Recently, I'm in the middle of writing another book, and in the midst of writing this book, I came to the subject of honor, and I'm supposed to write a chapter encapsulating what honor is and how we, you know, how we uh, incorporate it into our lives. And I mean, where do you start? I mean, I can, I can grab a concordance, I can grab an index, I can uh, read, there's plenty of commentary on honor your father and your mother. What is this honor? What does it mean? Uh, and so I spent quite a, a bit of time um, searching that way. And then I sat one day in my chair and I was like, okay, so I have all these pieces um, I have all these statements, I have definitions, I have quotes that tell me what it is and what it is not in a given circumstance. So how does this all fit together? So I, I set my mind to scouring my uh, mental catalog of Bible stories for honor. Any ideas as to stories, situations, scenarios in Scripture that, that came to my mind... Um, if I were to tell you, I want a story about honor in Scripture, what, what stories would come to your mind? I hear David. I hear Abraham and Isaac. I hear Ruth. Elijah. Jonathan. Elisha. What came to my mind, excellent. What came to my mind was, was David. David, who, as it is uh, told us in 2 Samuel a couple of times, uh, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, and then again in, in 26, David, remember who this guy was. He's just a boy when he was uh, anointed, 11 or 12 years old, and he grows up with this knowledge 
you're going to be the king. And he waits. He waits until um, not only has he been anointed, but now he has been in some sense confirmed because he shows up on this battlefield one day and there's this towering guy out there, you know, his mouth is just spilling out curses against the almighty God. And he's like, do you hear him? What are you going to do something? Who is going to deal with this guy? And they're like, oh, so he rushes into the king and he's like, I'm, you know, and the king is like, yeah, no, uh, you're toast. I'm toast. We're all toast. David's like, no, I'm not toast. Okay, fine then. Take my armor. No, I can't wear this armor. So he goes out just himself with a, you know, singing. And the miracle kills this guy. Israel routs their enemies. David had every reason to not just believe intellectually, but he had evidence to suggest, yeah, God is with me. I am the next king of Israel. Well, we know a few years later, he's, he's kind of absorbed into the royal household. And, of course, he has this constant, he's, uh, the king becomes his father-in-law, and he has this constant tug of war. And, in fact, on several occasions, David tries to kill him. Now, what would you be thinking if you were the anointed of God? What would you be thinking if you are clearly the next king of Israel, the next king appointed, mind you, because the current king is a scoundrel? So judged by God himself. Maybe you would be thinking, maybe we would be thinking the same thing that David's men were thinking. When Saul totters into the cave all exhausted and takes a nap right in the middle of David's men. And they're like, psst. (laughs) Look, clearly he has delivered him into your hands. And David's response is, Delivered him into my hands. No, he's the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. How dare I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? In two chapters, it happens again. Once in the field, once in the cave. And he comes out later, mind you, that one time. You know, he cut off the corner of, of Saul's robe the one time. The other time, he steals his spear and his, and his conscience. The Bible says his conscience smote him after he cut off the corner of the garment, like, oh, I've ruined the king's robe. And I'm sitting here reading, thinking, really, David? <laughs> you are the king. You, are the, you, you have been anointed king of Israel. This other guy is a scoundrel. He's obviously on your trail. He's trying to kill you twice. And while Saul is on the campaign to kill David, David's going to feel smitten in his heart that he's just cut off the corner of the robe and saved the king's life so that he can stand across the canyon and be like, I'm not trying to kill you. Honor just took on a whole new meaning for me. Now, in light of that, I can scour my Bible using my concordance for other instances of the word or related words. Hmm. I can scour uh, other key concepts that I find, you know, in the life of David, for example. Uh, You find this pattern when you juxtapose his life with the life of Saul. What time is it? Mercy. Uh, when you juxtapose his life with the life of Saul, you see this pattern. David, over and over and over and over and over again, refused to take matters into his own hands. This is the active ingredient in David. I'm just going to, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. David refuses to take matters into his own hands. Paul, Saul, on the other hand, does exactly the opposite. Remember when Saul's big boo-boo, the first big one, was? Did sacrifices because, well, for crying out loud, the prophet's just not showing up. We need to move. I mean, hello, the Philistines are right over there, and the people are clamoring. Okay, fine, I'll do it myself. 
So now I have my honor concept, and maybe I have an active ingredient in honor over here from this, you know, from this other corner of the story. I can have a topical study on this little bit as well. Do you see how the, the study can just expand and go all kinds of places? You, would never, you and I would never think to look that up in a concordance. But the story helped us sniff it out. Does that make sense? So we have stories you can study for the sake of the story, but we can also have actual topical studies. I, I have this particular need in my life. Or I'm supposed to preach a sermon, and I feel called to preach on this particular subject. Okay, so let the concordance be your friend. Let the, let the scripture index be your friend. Let the uh, Bible commentary be your friend. Let the uh, EGY app be your friend. And, um, but use the, use the stories to your advantage as well. That's my bottom line. The likelihood of getting derailed on a wind of doctrine is much lower when you use a story because the story is the whole package, right? If I just even write a whole sermon based on 10 awesome quotes I found on the definitions of honor, um, that's not the whole package. Does that make sense? There's... It would be hard for me to, to build a comprehensive, this is the balancing act. Because even in the life of David, that one story, you see the balancing act. Mm-hmm. Uh, David is not just a doormat. Uh, he's not just an abused, run over, you know. No, he's the king and he knows he's the rightful king. But at the same time, he's going to exercise this restraint. It's just phenomenal. It's mm. phenomenal. Mm. The lessons go on and on and on. And in stories and in topical studies, and in all study of the Word of God, what we want to be sure is happening is that it's changing the way we think. So if we have a particular need on a particular subject, I will give you an example. When I was young, I was molested by someone that was not, not too close to our family, but not too far from our family either. Okay? So in processing through that, I ended up going to particular chapters, especially in Desire of Ages, that express Christ's compassion and his desire to heal and his, the way he relates to those sort of difficult situations, I went and read those chapters over and over and over and over and over until my mind reflected what that chapter said. You see, that's so often we go through life and we have one picture of God in our hearts but we know that the Bible says, you know, God's really this way, but our heart says this, and the Bible says that, and our heart says this, and so we're kind of strung between two. We need to inundate ourselves with what this book says, what the Word of God says, with who it describes God to be, over and over and over and over and over until it changes the way we think. And if it means that we're reading this, similar chapters, if we're reading similar things, similar stories, over and over again, until it changes the way we think, so be it. And once it changes the way we think, praise the Lord, we are more heavenly minded. All right, so now we've talked about stories, we've talked about topical study, we need to fly. Okay, so let's talk about studying by book. How do we really extract, if we want to study, let's say, maybe the epistles, or if we decide we want to study one of the gospels, how do we really extract what is there from it? Let me give you um, very practical principles, and then I'll give you an example. What I would say the first thing when you're reading a book is to read Either the whole thing, if the book is short enough, or if it's too long to read a whole section quickly. Now, I know we were just talking about slowing down. However, there is something to be said about getting the big picture. So you read through it quickly to get the big picture, and then you go back and read it verse by verse by verse and say, okay, what is this verse saying, and how does this fit into the big picture? Let me give you an example from my current 
uh, devotional life. This is where I am right now. Book of Titus. So I was like, okay, I just finished doing a study through the book of 1 Peter. So I was like, well, should I read through 2 Peter now, study through 2 Peter, or shall I do something different? You know, it never hurts to change things up. Pastor Mark always says to us, any method used exclusively is a poor method. Change it up. The brain likes variety. We're, we're, we don't just do the same thing all the time. If we do the same thing all the time, it becomes boring to us. So I said, okay, instead of doing 2 Peter immediately, I'm going to do a different epistle. So I came to Titus, and I was like, okay, you know, I haven't done really in-depth studies of Titus. You know, what's most familiar? Well, people, you know, get into discussions about the verses, about being keepers at home, and we don't like that. And so then that becomes a point of contention. Whereas, what is the epistle really trying to say? Why is that verse included in the epistle? So we go and we read through the entire epistle, and as I read through the entire epistle in one sitting in a few minutes it's only three chapters long okay so it's not that long but then I'm like okay what's the point this is actually the epistle to the Cretans essentially he was Titus was the leader of the Cretan church at the time the church at Crete and what was the Cretans issues and and Paul articulates very clearly what the struggles in the church were how do those struggles relate to my life in the big picture do I have some of those same weaknesses then as we go through, what was, what was Paul's general you know, application of, hey, this is how you fix those issues within the Cretan church? Essentially, they were extremely immature, and they were having the issues of an immature church. And so, do I have those same immaturities in my life? Now, after I've read the big picture and I see, hey, this is the big picture of what's happening in Titus and in the Cretan church and to the leader of the Cretan church, which is who the epistle is written to. It's not written to the people. It's written to the leader. Okay, now let me go back and study it through verse by verse. What is he saying in verse 1? What is he saying in verse 2? What is he saying in verse 6 through 8? What is he saying in verse, you know, 13, 14, and 15? And so as I start going through and I'm reading it through slowly, patterns begin to emerge because I have the big picture and now I'm studying it precisely. And through this last time I've gone through, I realized in the epistle of Titus, Paul is essentially obsessed with two things, sobriety and um, being sound. Sober and sound. Sober and sound. If you circle all the times, which I did in my Bible, he says sober or sound, it's everywhere. All through the chapter, oh, sober, sound, sober, sound, sober, sound, sober, sound. So now we begin to realize this picture. Hey, here's the issue of immaturity in the Christian church. They're getting into contentions. They're getting into fights. They, they don't have you know, mature Christian characters. And what is the solution that Paul is giving? Sobriety and soundness. Okay, what does that mean? So then that's when we start going to Strong's Concordance and say, hey, what does sobriety mean? Does that just mean you know, no smiles? No, that's not what that means. So what does it mean? What does soundness mean? And so we start looking then at Strong's Concordance, looking down, and then we start understanding that Paul is actually giving an application, an actual way that you can deal with immaturity in the character. We're not just talking about personality immaturity, but character immaturity. How can we grow and to develop into mature, stable, sound, solid, healthy Christians? And it's all in the book of Titus. So, studying by story, by topical study, by book, uh, by author. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this one. We're almost out of time. But I, I just want to throw out there, we can, for example, get obsessed with, okay, First John, I need to understand. <sighs> Author is just obsessing over and over and over about love, 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 and love is of God, and God is love, and, and saying the same thing, in, you know, just over and over again in different words. What is the point? Why does he? You can get insights into the book of First, Second, and Third John by reading. Guess what book? The Epistle of John. Uh, it's it's the same author, and so if there's a missing link somewhere, you'll often find that missing link somewhere else in that same author's statements. Um, the same can be true, obviously, for the epistles of Paul. There's a lot more of those. But 
uh, one example, which we'll talk about more thoroughly this afternoon, when we talk about how to understand Paul's rambling uh, parts. Uh, there's, um, for example, the book of Ephesians is, in essence, a miniature of another book Paul wrote. Does anyone know which book that is? Colossians, Colossians close. Ephesians is a miniature Romans. So if you're reading through Ephesians and you find a uh, part that's like, okay that, okay, that makes sense, but how did you get there from here? Like, there seems to be a missing step. Sometimes there is a missing step because it's, Ephesians is way shorter than Romans. So anyway, those are just some, uh, those are hints. Remember that author, you know, whatever author you're reading may very well have written something else in the Bible that might be the key to understanding um, what you're dealing through now. This one, I think, let's no, I don't have pick time up. For that yeah, one let's pick up that this afternoon. afternoon. Yeah. Um, when we when we come back, we will finish this discussion and, and uh, transition into how um, not just what to you know what to read, what to pursue while doing devotions, but how specifically to do that. We'll talk about the role of prayer in study and how prayer brings study alive. Uh, we'll also. I got a question here. Uh, what do you do if, despite every effort at surrender and commitment, your devotion is still unsatisfying and flat? Is there something wrong with your spiritual life or with you? Exceptional question. We don't have time to deal with that now, though, so we'll deal with that uh, early this afternoon when we come back. Uh, bow your heads with us as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for, uh, for this morning, for the opportunity that we've had to seek you, uh, to open your word and just even see a little bit of the light that can come from its pages, we pray that uh, you would take this and make it a stepping stone, make it a springboard from which uh, greater intimacy with you and greater understanding of your word can come. We pray for your blessing on uh, each of our friends in this room, that as they go from this place, your spirit might go with them, that our joy might be full through the rest of today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.